I'm going to dismiss our kids for Children's Church at this time. Kids, have a good time. Sad to see you leave. Thank you, you guys, by the way, for uh, waving palm branches this morning. If you're a visitor here, know that we don't wave random tree branches every single week. This is a special day, so pine trees will not be next week. I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 21. Um, It'll be on the screen for you to follow with me, and I would encourage you to do so. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the villages ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to your daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him... Uh, And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Father God, we have come to this day, the day in which your passion has begun, that your plan for creation to be restored through Jesus is set into motion by this event that we read about this morning. And we ask, God, that the Savior, that the Lord, the King, Jesus, would be present here with us, guiding, teaching, and shaping Holy Spirit, come and bring this Jesus to us this day, we ask. God, speak through me to this congregation that Jesus would be lifted high and that we would follow him in response faithfully. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, My preferred movie genre is suspense or thriller, either or one of those. Um, and and the, my, my, the reason for this is one simple fact. I love a good twist in a movie. Absolutely love like a good... And I know it doesn't just happen in suspense movies or thrillers, but those movies traditionally have these like enormous twists in the plots that just make your head explode, you know? Like I love that jaw-dropping, mind-bending, semi-confusing moment when you... When everything that you thought you knew about this story and about this movie is actually flipped on its head and you realize, I actually didn't know what was going on the whole time. I I certainly do enjoy the gut-busting comedy and the stereotypical action film for guys to sit down and watch people drive fast, blow things up, and use really cheesy lines uh, that are very predictable. And I even enjoy the occasional chick flick, yes... 
I do, I do. <laughs> but there's no greater viewing pleasure for me than a movie with a great unexpected twist. I especially enjoy watching those movies with people who like express like their absolute shock in what happened, right? I love sitting in the theater with the person who's like three rows behind you that's like, what? No way, like are you serious? Did that just happen? Oh my gosh, there's no way that just happened, right? And I laugh, I love when they do it because I, I don't have the guts to do it myself, but I want to, right? It's this, this provoking feeling, this strong feeling that you have inside of you. Now, I don't want to blow any twists for you, but to give you an example, have, yeah, no spoiler alerts here. I'm not going to spoil anything for you, okay, because I love the twist. So if you haven't seen it yet, the movie Sixth Sense. How many of you guys have seen the movie Sixth Sense, right? Like, there's this point at the end of the movie when your head literally just comes off and you're like, oh my gosh, I totally understand what was going on this whole time now. Right? Isn't that like the, that's like the, the ultimate twist, I thought, in my movie viewing pleasure or experiences. Or for those of you who are older, maybe you remember uh, Star Wars, right? The famous line. <laughs> Can I spoil that one? Luke, I am your father. Like, who knew that Darth Vader was going to be Luke's father? Oh, my. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Spoiler alert. Sorry. That's why we dismiss the kids first. <laughs> or more recently, for those of you who might be younger and for those of you who might be older, have you seen the movie Frozen yet? All right. No spoiler. No spoiler alert here. I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. I'm not... Going to, but there's this point where there's this guy who you thought one thing and you're like, no, what? I, I, I won't say anymore, but those of you who've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And then the end, there's a second twist. That's the thing about Frozen that gets you. There's a twist and then there's another twist at the end that you're just like, what? No, I didn't see that. Head, boom, exploding. You see, one of the powerful effects of a great twist is in its ability to instantaneously force your mind to rethink your entire experience and feelings that you felt throughout the movie. When you realize the thing in Sixth Sense or the thing in Frozen of what's going on, it makes you, like, just in this moment rethink, oh, so that's what's going on this whole time. So how then can I understand what has come before in these previous scenes? Some people might even shell out the $52 it takes to get into the movies nowadays to watch the movie again so that they can understand, right, and watch the whole movie one more time with the proper understanding just to try and make sense of it all. Imagine with me for a second, though, that you walk into Sixth Sense right, at, right, right before that moment. What would your experience of the movie be if you walked in at the very last moment? It wouldn't have this sort of weighty feeling. You would just step in and you'd see it and you'd think, oh, okay, nice. I don't think I need to watch the movie now, right? Or what if you walked in the last few minutes of Frozen? And you didn't have the buildup of the whole story of what was going on. You wouldn't even really know that there were these twists happening. You would simply watch the movie and think to yourselves, oh, that's just the story. No feelings. 
the weightiness of that moment is totally removed because you don't understand all of the scenes that have come before it. Several weeks ago, we finally made our way to the New Testament in our 31-week series. It's so long. Through the story of the Bible. I do support it. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to say it like that. was a bad idea. This is, I, I, I love, but it, it is a long series, right? I say finally because listening to 20 weeks worth of sermons all in the Old Testament can be a serious challenge and downright confusing, even to most churchgoers. And so if we've been in this story and you've been like, I sort of know what's going on, but kind of not know that you are actually in the majority with the rest of us. And most of us, we, become more, we are more familiar with the New Testament because the simple fact and reality that we are Christians, that our faith is centered on the person and work of Jesus, and last time I checked, the name Jesus occurs nowhere in the Old Testament. Not in Greek, not in Hebrew, not in English. Jesus is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. And so it was this sense of relief that we experienced when we got to the New Testament. Finally, something we're familiar with. Finally, something I can understand. In fact, I, I even heard several people express this in our church. I heard a, a few people talk about how their growth group discussions actually got a lot better once we jumped into Jesus because everybody was able to converse and had some background knowledge of like kind of what's going on. If you were anything like the college, uh, the college group that we were part of, it was kind of like this, like, uh, like pulling teeth, trying to get people to understand what was going on in parts of the Old Testament. Um, what I want us this morning, though, to be mindful of is the fact that the Jesus that we read about in the New Testament is intimately connected with the story that happens in the Old Testament. You see, the experience of reading Jesus should do for us what great twists do for their viewers. It should flood our minds with past scenes and stories that have preceded it. And this is exactly what the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, try to do for us when we open their gospels. In the first chapter of each of their gospels, they're connecting Jesus to Israel. They're connecting Jesus, the New Testament, to what has gone on before in the Old Testament. Matthew begins his gospel with a portion of scripture most of us would rather just skip over than read. Matthew starts with a genealogy, a list of names, a family lineage, if you will, of Jesus. But it's significant because Matthew roots Jesus in Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob, in David... In the story of Israel, in the Old Testament, Mark begins by citing a prophecy in Malachi, a prophecy that served as the sort of prelude for the coming Messiah. Luke begins his gospel message with a story about a barren woman. Where have we seen that story before? Where have we not seen that story before? And John begins his story in perhaps the most unique way, he begins his story with the story of creation. In the beginning, God. There is no way to escape it. The story of Jesus, according to the gospel writers, is firmly rooted and planted in the story of Israel, in the story of the Old Testament. And this morning, I want us to see how 
the climactic scene of Jesus entering Jerusalem and being hung on a cross helps us understand uh, what God was doing throughout all of the Old Testament. Kids are really funny to me. Um, I don't really know how to relate to kids at all, like little, little tots. But I love playing with them, you know, because they're just like, they're, they're a hoot. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons why I have a hard time kind of relating to kids is that they sometimes don't speak so coherently. Uh, especially like, you know, like two-year-olds. They kind of sort of know English, but they don't really know English, like at all, actually. They, they have no kind of grasp of grammar and how to communicate their feelings or whatever, you know. Um, and so whenever I talk to little kids, I'm like, I've, I have no idea what you just said. A, a few months ago, um, uh, Kyla, she, she's not in here, but her niece was here, and her niece came to, came to the church while I was working here in the office a few times, and she like would say something to me, and I'll look at Kyla, and she would translate like this two-year-old speak so that I can understand. Um, one time in my life, though, uh, two-year-olds not being able to speak was actually a real benefit for me. I was in high school, and I was helping out with the, the kids, you know, church, whatever, the two-year-olds, and it was me and another adult in the room, like kind of watching these 15 kids, and kids... I've learned they like to be, like, picked up and, like, thrown and, like, twisted upside down and all these, like, weird things, right? They love that stuff. And so I'm always the one that's like, yeah, okay, let's do this. I'm going to throw you up, flip you around, and then I'm going to catch you, right? So they're coming up to me, and I grab this kid, and he's like, turn me around. And so I'm like, I'm turning him around, and he's upside down, and I drop him on his head. And then he starts crying. And the adult, the other adult in the room, she turns, and she's like, what happened? And I was like... He fell. Oh, he was running, and he fell. And so this kid, you know, he's like in hysterics, and he's trying to talk in his two-year-old way of communicating, and I was like, he's not going to tell on me. He's not going to tell on me. This is awesome. I'm going to drop more two-year-olds. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Right? But sometimes reading the Old Testament is like talking to a two-year-old. I don't know if you have that experience, but I have that experience as well where there's sometimes where you could pick out some words or some stories and begin to grasp, like, okay, I, I think I kind of know what's going on here. But as far as any sort of coherent statement, it's kind of like, I am totally lost of what is going on in the Old Testament. Why did God pick Israel? Why, did, why do they have kings? Why do they keep messing up? Why do they go into exile? Sometimes when I read, actually, the Old Testament, it's like I have more questions than I, than I do understanding or clarity. But in order for us to see what Jesus' work on the cross has to do with that story, we have to be able to wrap our minds around what has been going on in this story the whole time. And so let me give you a, a, a sort of forest from the trees, a bird's eye perspective of what God has been up to in the Old Testament so that we can be on the same page here together. I wrote it down so I could say it right. God created the world. God set Adam in the garden to govern God's creation on God's behalf. Adam fails at this, and as a result, sin enters into the world, and Adam is kicked out of the garden. God then calls Abraham and his descendants, which we uh, label as Israel, Abraham's descendants. God calls them to be the ones through whom, this is really important, through whom he would accomplish his mission to make the world right again. 
God calls Israel to be the ones through whom he will make the world right again because sin has entered the world. Israel and its kings like Adam fail at this mission of God. And like Adam was kicked out of the garden, Israel is sent into exile. But what we shockingly discover throughout this story, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, is that God never gives up his desire to partner with Israel to be the people through whom he would make the world right again. In fact, he promises them at the end of the Old Testament that he would give them a king, that he would give them a Messiah that would not just lead them out of exile, but would lead them to fulfill their vocation as God's people to be the people through whom God would make the world right. Are you all with me? The story's there. We're kind of there. Uh, maybe I could simplify it. God says, Adam, do this. He doesn't do it. Sin enters the world. God says, all right, Israel, you're going to be the ones who are going to help me kind of clean up this mess. And they don't do it, but God still wants to clean up the mess of sin through Israel. That's the Old Testament. (laughs) You don't need to read it ever again. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Our gospel passage this morning finds Jesus making his way into Jerusalem. Uh, And his mode of transportation, a donkey, isn't accidental. As I referenced earlier, the the long-awaited Messiah that Israel had been waiting literally hundreds of years for, that would free them from exile, that would lead them into fulfilling their calling, has arrived onto the scene. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there's about 400 years where Israel is literally just waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this king, this ruler, who would free them from captivity in Rome. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey as a pronouncement that he is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the leader of Israel who would free them from Roman captivity and the ones who call, to, to lead them into fulfilling what God always wanted to do through Israel in making the world right. Jesus' entrance is a clear statement to every Jew everywhere at that time. Your time has come. Your king is here. Get ready. A couple of weeks ago, Rolf made the point that Jesus, whenever he kind of like shows up and does things, there's this sort of unexpected chaos. And I love the imagery that it gave me in understanding how people like responded to Jesus's presence. And Jesus walking into Jerusalem, I was reminded of that point because there's this sort of impromptu party that starts to be thrown when Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. People are literally grabbing branches off of trees and ripping them down. And like our kids, parading around, celebrating that the long-awaited Messiah has arrived. It is nothing less than this crazy, wild party. Their king is here. But a twist in the story revolves around the identity of Jesus Jesus is not merely the king of the Jews. He, who has arrived, he has arrived as the king of the world. Let me say that again. Jesus is not merely the king of the Jews, the Messiah of the Jews. He has arrived as the king of the world. He is God in the flesh, being of one substance with the Father, very God of very gods. His identity makes him much greater than what Israel had been waiting for. 
This is the king and the Messiah that triumphantly marched into Jerusalem that day. Not just the king of Israel, but of the world. And he had not come just to set Israel free from their bondage in Rome. He had come to set the world free from its bondage to sin. This is the king that showed up on that day. The king of the world. This is the gospel story that we usually celebrate during Holy Week. And I want to affirm and say amen. But what I want us to see is that when we read this story in connection to the Old Testament, the story becomes something so much bigger than being freed from the bondage of sin, which is how we've often talked about uh, Jesus' uh, being Messiah or Savior and his work on the cross. And so I want us to look at how reading this in light of the Old Testament completely changes or enhances, completes what Jesus was doing on the cross that day. Um, one of the keys, I feel like, to the story is that uh, the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for is not merely uh, a king who would free them from exile, but would lead them into fulfilling their calling to redeem the world, to make the world right. And this is what Jesus has come to do for us, not simply to save us from our captivity to sin or our bondage to sin, but also to save us for a purpose, that we, his people, would be the ones through whom he would make the world right again. This is a saving from and a saving for which I think we have so often missed in the church, is that the king has arrived, not merely to keep us from being punished and being sent to hell, but he has come to give us our vocation back, our calling back, that through us, uh, the world would be made right again. Um, One of the things I find really interesting about being around certain subcultures is that they have, all of them, unique ways of speaking about things. They have unique ways of doing things. Like if you went to a baseball game and you said, hey, how was the game? You would be communicating something very different than if you went to a tennis match and you said, hey, how was the game? Right? If you guys are familiar with that. Is that sometimes you use words for different things. Or if I told you that Tiger shot a 70... Most of you would be, some of you might be able to understand what that means. Others of you would be like, is that good? Is the high number good? Is the low number, like, right? It's like you have no clue what's going on. Sometimes I feel like that way in the church. I wonder sometimes what the experience is like for people who enter the church, and then we drop words like righteousness. Like, what, what does that really mean, right? Or like faithfulness and holiness and Uh, a savior, a messiah, like all of those things are lost on people who have no idea, no insider info on what we are talking about. One of those phrases that I think we so often use in the church but don't always explain fully is the phrase, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Now, it's this really unique uh, phrase that Jesus doesn't exactly define for us, actually. Jesus says these really weird things when people ask him, what is the kingdom of God? He says things like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And you're like, what does that even mean? <laughs> right? 
Imagine the disciples, right? Like, what's the kingdom of God? And he's like, it's like this seed here. I'd be like, you are crazy, right? Or there's these other parts where, like, he tells his story. The kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field, and he goes and sells everything he had so that he can buy this field that has a treasure. And you're like, that's cool, but, like, I don't get exactly what that means at all. And every time Jesus references the kingdom of God, it's sort of this confusing thing, so what I think, what I, what I believe Scripture teaches us is that the kingdom of God is any place where Jesus is king. Usually when we think of kingdoms, we think of nations or countries. Countries have GDPs. They have uh, governmental systems. They have laws. But the kingdom of God what, that we talk about is not this sort of um, temporal, geographically located space is that what Jesus talks about, the kingdom of, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about the place where God's plan to redeem the world, to make things right again, is happening. That is what it, what it means to, to participate and to share in the kingdom of God, is that you're sharing in God making the world right. For example, uh, we're going to be doing a 30-hour famine at the end of this month in our youth ministry. And... One of the things, or the thing that we've been talking a lot about the past couple of weeks in our student ministry is that we live in this incredibly messed up world when it comes to economics and finances. Is that we live in a world where we have the means to lift everybody out of poverty. We have enough money for that, but it doesn't happen. We live in a world where we have an abundance of food, but not everybody has enough to eat. We live in a world where we have enough water to give everybody to drink, but not everybody has water to drink. And we're talking about how this is really weird world that we live in and that we don't fully understand as Americans especially. And so part of our hope in the 30-hour famine is that we would raise funds to try and alleviate poverty in parts of the world. That's what the kingdom of God is. God's world that he intended is not supposed to have hungry people. God's world that he created is not supposed to have diseases that we can cure just running rampant in parts of the world. The kingdom of God is when God's people say that is not right and we are going to make that thing right in the world. And that is when the kingdom of God is, begins to break in to our world. This is why it's so important to understand Jesus and what he accomplishes uh, during his passion, not merely as our savior, but as a king, as a lord of creation. Is that he doesn't want to just simply save us from something. He wants to save us for his kingdom. He wants to save us so that through us, we might be the ones through whom the world might be made right again. And we talk about the kingdom of God, and usually in the church when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're like, yeah, pumped up, like we're going to go change the world, you know? Like I want to make things right again. I, I certainly do, for sure. Put me on that, 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 that wagon there. But there's a sort of another twist that comes when we talk about the kingdom coming to earth, the kingdom of God uh, breaking into our world that we have to understand. And it has to do with Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was listening to a podcast. Is anybody, oh, what is that podcast? Jeremy, you told me about it that I listen to all the time now. What is it called? Forget about it. I, I listened to this podcast. What? 
Radiolab, Radiolab. If you guys want to listen to like this really cool podcast, listen to Radiolab. I'm like an addict now. I just listen to Radiolab all the time. But it's this kind of podcast that talks about culture and science and these really cool, really cool stories. They discover cool stories and they share them with you. And it kind of reminds me of when I was in history class and they talked about, you know, uh, prior to the television where families would sit around and listen to stories being told on the radio. Like that's totally my experience of this podcast is I love to just sit around and listen to somebody talk. That's so weird in our culture. But I love this. Well, there's this one podcast I was listening to that had this guy on who had this really interesting story. When he was younger in high school, um, he wasn't a very cool kid. He um, didn't get invited to parties. This is in his language. He really uh, didn't attract any sort of attention or friends. He was just kind of, you know, this wallflower that nobody really noticed. And one of the things that he says is he always parted his hair on the right side, right? And he was like, I look cool. Like, I don't understand why people don't want to hang out with me. Like, look at me in the mirror. Like, I'm super cool. And so he had this really weird uh, idea that maybe he should part his hair on the left side, right? And so he parts his hair on the left side. And what he says, this is his story, so believe it or not, whatever. What he says is he parts his hair on the left side suddenly... People started taking notice of him. People started like inviting him to parties. And when he was at parties, people were, he was like the center of attention. And people were wanting to spend more time with him. And he was like, man, I, I found like the thing that helps you be cool is don't part your hair on the right side, part it on the left side. Really weird. And so I was like, listen to the story. And he was so moved by this that uh, I think it was Jimmy Carter at the time was president. And he says, I wrote a letter to Jimmy Carter and said, hey, man, your hair is parted on the right side. You need to change that to the left side. And so they, they show, you could go online, they put the pictures. Jimmy Carter did have his hair parted on the right side, and then he did it on the left side. And the guy's like, I don't know if I had anything to do with it, but I like to think that I did. So weird. Look it up online. Look it up online. And so you're kind of thinking, like, that's a really strange thing. But what happens is they show a picture of this guy with his hair parted on the right side. And what happens in a mirror is your image is reflected backwards to you, right? And so in the mirror, what you see isn't your hair parted on the right side. You see it on the left side. And so what he began to do is he would part his hair on the left side and look in the mirror and was like, man, that is so weird to see me with my hair parted on the right side. Because most of us, we only ever look at ourselves, right, backwards, we don't see ourselves the way other people see us. And so he was so inspired by like this hair parting thing and the mirror image. And he, starts, he started this company that makes these things called true mirrors. That you can look in the mirror and see yourself the way other people would see you. So weird. So like when you do this, it's not on this side of the mirror, but this side of the mirror that your hand goes up. It's a very weird, weird thing. But it's this sort of backwards image that we so often see. And it was only by seeing himself backwards through the mirror that he was able to change and get the results that he wanted. Kind of a cheesy, perhaps, story, but a plug for uh, Radio Lab and for you to listen to the podcast. But, but there's this interesting thing that we discover in Jesus on the cross is that in order for the world to be redeemed, it happens as a sort of backwards way, in a, in a way that we don't expect at all. You see, we worship a, a God who said some really strange backwards-sounding things. 
We live by dying. We gain by giving. We become greatest by becoming least. Is that the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring to the world is completely backwards of how we usually think God probably should do things. Is we usually think that God should by force somehow get people to arm wrestle them into doing what he wants them to do, but what we discover instead, that it's not by forcing people, but by giving himself to the world, that the world can actually be changed and made right again. God's redemptive purposes ever since Jesus went to the cross have only happened through people who carried their cross. Another statement by Jesus that we so often kind of, we don't understand fully. What does it mean to carry your cross? It means to empty yourself out of love for the broken world that we live in, in the hopes that it might be changed. This is what Jesus has called his people to do. We, uh, in the youth group, we have been studying uh, various passages where Jesus where people ask Jesus these really interesting questions like, how do you inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with these really strange but very direct ways. In one of them, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says uh, a famous passage that many of you might know. Jesus says, uh, you need to give food to hungry people, give uh, drink to thirsty people, clothe the naked, visit people who are in prison, and welcome in strangers to your home. And that's how you inherit eternal life. This is how... God is going to change the world. In this other story, uh, a, a religious leader comes to Jesus and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says that he needs to love his neighbor as himself. And the religious leader responds to him. He says, well, who, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a story which many of us know, where there is a man who sees a man who has uh, been beaten, bruised, and he takes care of him right there. And one of the things that I see over and over and over in Jesus' teachings is that he is constantly calling his people to love and give of themselves to people who can't give anything back. Like there is nothing a hungry person can do for you or to you that would be able to express an appropriate amount of gratitude uh, for you giving them food. Like they can never give back to you what it is that you gave to them. The good Samaritan, like that man who probably would have died on the road, could never give entirely his life back to the person who saved it. And what Jesus says, he says, my kingdom always comes through people who give of themselves out of love to people who can't give anything back to them. This is how the kingdom of God works, and it is how God is going to redeem all of creation and though we often get excited about the kingdom of God, we kind of shy away a little bit from the way through which God's kingdom can actually come to earth. I've often seen uh, or heard stories of people who go on um, short-term missions trips uh, around the world or internationally. And one of the things that I almost universally hear from people who go on these trips is that when they return, they say something like, I went to be a blessing to these people and was actually blessed in return. Do you know why that is? Because they suffer for the sake of the world. Because people in other countries, they very intuitively know what it is to give of themselves 
give of every, all of their life, all of their finances, all of their resources for God's redemptive purposes in the world. It literally costs them everything. And the reason why you feel blessed when you're there is because that is what the kingdom of God looks like when it breaks into the world. And the reason why we have such a difficult time understanding that in our world is because luxuries have become needs. And we have ceased to understand what it looks like to be people who carry their crosses. Um, There's a a guy uh, several weeks ago that many of you may have met. He's this old man from my previous church in Long Beach. His name is John Hardison, and everyone calls him Doc because he was a a vet um, of animals for uh, like 30 years, some outrageous number. And some of you guys got to meet Doc, and he's this really sweet guy, um, and this really kind of quirky guy, so funny. Um, one of the things that I've seen Doc do in my relationship with him for since, uh, I don't know, five years now, is that Doc carries his cross for the sake of other people. He gives himself out of love for the sake of other people, like a ridiculous amount, um, and he has done it for me. I watched this video of Doc. He was at this big youth ministry conference. He's always worked with kids. And uh, they brought him on stage, and they started to, they gave him an award uh, because of his work in youth ministry. And I got to hear a bunch of things that Doc had done throughout his life in order to try and reach out to lost and broken kids in the city of Long Beach. And he used to drive around on Sunday mornings, he would wake up. It was the only day he had off work. He worked six days a week, and his one day off was Sunday, and he would wake up at like six in the morning to get ready for church and to drive around the city of Long Beach over 100 miles to pick up various kids to come to church, like at 8.30 in the morning. Like he would wake up early so that he could drive around all over the city of Long Beach to pick up kids so that they could come hear the good news about Jesus Christ. I have seen Doc um, constantly uh, go out of his way to minister to kids that their own churches wouldn't minister to. There were kids who wouldn't be able to come to things like summer camp or other things that we had going on in the district. And not only would he pay for them, he would drive literally like two hours out of the way to pick up these kids, bring them to the event, then drop them off at home, and then be done with the event. He literally drove up, he's driven up here to see me and to uh, be an encouragement to me and a support to me about four or five times since I've been up here, literally for like, Doc, I don't have any time, I could only like grab breakfast and coffee and then I got to split. He's like, fine, I'll do it. I want to come up there and I want to bless you. The time he spent on the road was like double the amount of time that we spent together. When we uh, were going on a missions trip a few years ago to Ecuador uh, with our local church. There was a young lady who felt a call into ministry, but she couldn't afford the trip. He literally paid for her entire trip, like a couple thousand dollars, so that she can go and participate in God's mission of the world. And he doesn't tell anybody about any of this stuff, you know. But he's constantly giving of himself. He, he seizes every opportunity, every relationship, every moment to give of himself for the sake of broken people, for the sake of people who need to be restored and redeemed and for their lives to be made right. 
This is what it looks like to carry our crosses. This is what it looks like to allow Jesus to be king of your life. I want this to be the gospel and the story that we participate in as Christians today. Jesus does not simply give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. He gives us a vocation and a mission. Change the world with me. This is the invitation that we are given each and every Easter, each and every Good Friday. And it's the one that we need to participate in Monday through Saturday. We weren't just saved to be saved. We are saved for a purpose. And that purpose is to carry our crosses so that God can fix the world. This is a mission that I can get behind. This is a Jesus that I will willfully submit to, a king that I want to submit to, a kingdom that I want my world to look like. This is the vision of the gospel. It's the vision of Jesus. It's the vision of all of scripture. Some of you here this morning, maybe maybe you are broken. Maybe you feel chained by sin. Maybe you feel like Israel in exile, that you've just been trapped in this, like, this broken state for so many years. It is through Jesus that you can be made free from that. And I would invite you to receive that this morning. Others of you sitting in the church, maybe you've been to church for literally years and years and years and years, and you're, you're trying to understand what it is all about. Pick up your cross. Give of yourself out of love for the sake of another. It is through you, it is through our church that Jesus, that God wants to make the world right. Would you share in this mission that he has for us? This is the gospel. This week, I hate, um, I hate, uh, hold on, time out. I hate, um, I hate studying this stuff because it makes me examine my life, like, so closely. And while I've been studying this for the past few weeks, I've just been thinking, like, is Jesus my king? Do I give of myself? Do I carry my cross? And my invitation to you guys is carry your crosses. This is how the world is going to change. It's a mission that we can get behind. It's how God wants to partner with us. Join God in his mission. Pray with me. Father God, you are a good God. You give us gifts that we are so undeserving of. You are wanting us to partner with you, God. And so we ask God that that as we enter into Holy Week, as we enter into your passion, that we would enter into your death. And on Easter, enter into your life, God. We do confess that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord. And we want to know how it is that we can carry our crosses for the sake of the world. So Spirit, fill us. Give us discernment and clarity of how you want to bring your kingdom to Santa Barbara. How you want to bring your kingdom to Goleta, Father. Give us courage and give us strength to follow where you are leading. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.